good morning. My name is uh, Nate Smith. I serve as executive pastor here at Trinity. Um, if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to our gospel reading. Uh, Mark chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 29 through 39. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. The word of the Lord. Gracious and Heavenly Father, I pray that through your word that we would see your son Jesus more clearly, that we would love him more dearly and follow him more nearly. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. The setting for this story is a small fishing village in the north shore of the Sea of Galilee called Capernaum. At that time it had a population of about 1,500. It was the home of Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, James and John, and also Matthew. Uh, Simon, who is later known as Peter, and Andrew were brothers. Um, they uh, were both, had both been fishermen before Jesus called them to follow him. And their house was uh, not too far from the synagogue in Capernaum. James and John were also brothers, the sons of Zebedee. They also had been former fishermen um, before Jesus called them. Right before this, uh, Jesus had been teaching in the synagogue, and while there, he encountered a man with an unclean spirit and cast it out. Uh, since Mark notes for us that they left the synagogue immediately, we know that the actions in this story begin on the Sabbath, which is why those who had people to be healed and who had demons to be cast out waited until evening time when the Sabbath was over before they came to the door. Jesus, though, doesn't wait until the Sabbath is over to heal Simon's mother-in-law. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. What's notable about this? First, her healing was immediate and complete. Second, Jesus not only healed her body, he restored her to useful service. And three, this was not just about restoring an individual, it was about restoring a family and a community as she was able to reclaim her role in her household and her community. Before we go on, I'd like to say a few words about miraculous healings. As a um, medical doctor, I have a, I would call a healthy skepticism of claims of miraculous healing. Um, Years ago, I had a HIV patient who was doing really pretty well on his HIV medications. He came to me one time for follow-up, though, and said he had gone to a church, and there they had prayed over him for healing. 
they believed he was healed and they encouraged him to stop taking his medications. And so he had. And now I believe that God is able to heal. God is able to heal HIV. Now the question was, you know, how was he healing and, and what happened in this particular instance? And so we talked through it and we decided that we would go ahead and do a, a viral load test to see if the HIV was actually gone. And um, that if it was, there would be no need for him to continue medications. And if it wasn't, we'd start him back on. And we did the test and the HIV was still present. We put him back on his medications and actually he continued to do well. Um, that I think is what I would call a healthy skepticism. Now there's something I would call an unhealthy skepticism. An unhealthy skepticism is um, the assumption that if there's some kind of natural explanation for something, that it cannot possibly be miraculous, that the natural and the supernatural cannot exist in the same sphere. The physical and the, uh, and the, and the spiritual uh, are, are, are uh, mutually exclusive. I would reject that uh, premise. If God works in this world that he's created, um, he usually uses matter and energy, does he not? And if God heals, it's likely that he uses physiologic pathways. Sometimes he uses those in very unusual ways um, and sometimes for very specific purposes and most often in response to prayer. As a medical doctor, I oftentimes had to give people difficult diagnoses. And a, and a, a frequent question that I would get is, is why? You know, why did this happen? And um, early in my career, I would usually give um, uh, an explanation of risk factors and the pathophysiology in terms that I, I felt like my patients were able to understand. And in, in some cases, that's what they wanted or needed to hear. In most cases, though, it was, it was inadequate. Uh, they weren't just asking for how, does, how this is happening, they were asking for why did this happen? Why did this happen to me? And why now? And why does things like this happen to anyone? Uh, they were searching for meaning, not just a mechanistic explanation. And that's where my medical training uh, let me down a bit. Um, so much of my medical training um, was, was based in a, what I'd call an absolute materialism where only things that are observable, measurable, and repeatable uh, really count for anything. And um, uh, that absolute materialism had nothing to say to my patients. I couldn't even tell them that there's no meaning here because after all, there's no data to support or to refute that claim. At the Mission Hospital in Kenya called Tenwick Hospital, they have on their wall painted a, a, the words, uh, we treat Jesus heals, and I think that's a good perspective for a Christian healthcare worker. Jesus is the great physician. It was Jesus' healing ministry that, um, that inspired me to go to medical school. Um, I do have uh, some critiques of the healthcare industry though. Um, there's a tendency to reduce people to disease processes. There's also a tendency to turn health into a commodity that can be bought and sold. I spent about 15 years of my career working for uh, state or federal public health. Most uh, recent of those was at the CDC. And I consider public health to be a high and holy calling. Uh, but there is also a tendency to reduce people to numbers and statistics 
to reduce human flourishing to quality-adjusted life years. Healing that does not address the body, the mind, and the spirit falls far short of the example Jesus gives. So why did Jesus heal the sick? Well, Jesus uh, healed the sick because he cares about our sufferings. He has compassion. It's an outpouring of who he is, what his character is. Jesus also heals because he cares about our bodies. It's an embodied spirituality that Jesus presents to us. The goal, the purpose, the telos of our redemption is not to escape these physical bodies, but to, like Jesus, uh, be resurrected with new bodies that don't wear out or fall apart. Jesus' miraculous healings also identified him as the Messiah, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and bore witness to the truth of his message concerning the kingdom of God. Let me put my outline up there so you can see where I'm going. Maybe this will help. Jesus heals. Jesus also casts out demons. Okay, um, I would refer you to last week's sermon by Chris. He did an excellent job laying out the case for personification of evil. And I'm thankful to him because he's saving me by about 10 minutes. Now, I'm going to get it back, but... Um, um, what I would add to that, though, is that we oftentimes embrace this false dichotomy just as with miraculous healings, uh, that somehow the spiritual and the material um, you know, can't coexist. But that's not the way we experience life. Um, we exist in, in both spheres, in both dimensions. Uh, for example, when we come to the table in communion, the bread is, is physical bread and the wine is physical wine, and yet to us, for us, it's the spiritual body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the spiritual and the material interact with one another, sometimes bidirectionally. For example, mental illness can predispose us to negative spiritual influences. On the other hand, if spiritual forces are at work in a person, they're likely to affect observable, measurable physiologic processes. Now, the most common, the most important, and the most potent effects of negative spiritual forces, spiritual forces of evil on us, are not through our physiologic processes. They're through lies and false accusations. Jesus called Satan the father of lies, and actually the, the Hebrew word satan means adversary or accuser. We should not underestimate the power of lies and false accusations. At the same time, we also have to realize that the power that they have over us is power that we give to them by believing them. It's no wonder that Jesus commands the demons to be silent. If we find ourselves in dialogue with the devil, um, it's, it's okay to be discourteous. Um, we don't have to try and defend our positions. If we're dialoguing with the devil and we're soaking in lies and false accusations, the best thing to do is to end that conversation. It's the truth that Jesus brings that will set us free. It's the gospel of grace that we are beloved, that we are forgiven, and that we're being made new. In the Bible, spiritual forces of evil associate themselves with people, with places, and with institutions. And Jesus faces off against them in all three of these fears. 
Now, I think it takes some degree of spiritual sensitivity to recognize uh, spiritual forces of evil associated with a place or with a specific person, but um, it's not all that hard to see spiritual forces at work in institutions, econo um, economic systems, and, uh, and certain governments. The Rwandan genocide and the Holocaust are extreme examples of this. Uh, but they're more ordinary examples of, of regular government agencies, industries, institutions, economic systems that are managed by decent ordinary people and yet still uh, are capable of great injustice and oppression that suppresses the human spirit. It was the dual institution of the Roman government and the Jewish religious uh, community that conspired together to put Jesus to death. Jesus disarmed and defeated the powers and the principalities, the spiritual forces at work in those institutions, not by political action or by an armed uprising, but through his death and resurrection. He disarmed them and he defeated them. So why does Jesus cast out demons in this story? Well, Jesus cares for our suffering. He cares for the spiritual suffering of those oppressed. It's also consistent with Jesus' mission. Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan. And these acts of um, casting out demons show his authority over all things, including spiritual powers. Uh, now, related question, why does he cast out so many demons? Um, if you look in the Old Testament, it's hard to find a demon. And, and even other parts of the New Testament, they're few and far between. But it seems like every time Jesus turns around, he's encountering and casting out a demon. You know, what, what's going on here? Um, I think Jesus was probably better at recognizing uh, uh, spiritual forces of evil than, than we are. I think probably... Um, we miss it a lot of times. But I also think that the kingdom of God was breaking through, uh, through Jesus uh, into enemy territory. And there was an intense uh, spiritual backlash. Um, at this point, I'd like to talk a little bit about, about the spleen. <clears throat> uh, may I have the next slide? Now you may ask, Nate, why do you want to talk about the spleen in the middle of the sermon? Well, why wouldn't I? <laughs> the spleen is a small organ tucked away behind the ribs in the left upper quadrant of the abdomen. It's lesser known. If you have a heart problem, you can go to a cardiologist. If you have a lung problem, you can go to a pulmonologist. But as far as I know, there are no board-certified spleenologists. You know, part of its lack of notoriety is that, um, you know, a lot of people aren't quite sure what it does. It's a little bit difficult to describe. Um, it's kind of like certain jobs. Have you ever had one of those jobs? Now, now, when I was a medical doctor, I could say I'm a doctor and people would know what that was. Even when I worked for CDC, probably most people weren't quite clear, but they knew better than to ask. Um, <laughs> Now that I'm an executive pastor, I, I say with confidence, you know, I serve as executive pastor at Trinity Anglican Church, and I just hope that they don't ask any follow-up questions. <laughs> when they inevitably do, I'm trying to think, 
yeah, what is it I do? It sure seems to keep me busy, but I'm not quite sure <laughs> how to describe it. The spleen is kind of like that. Um, probably the best way to describe its function is to say it, it clears out old red blood cells and, and certain types of bacteria, specifically what we call encapsulated organisms. Um, and some of you are thinking, huh, is that, is that really a thing? Um, do we actually need a spleen? Probably the same people who are thinking, do we actually need an exec executive pastor here? <laughs> okay. I'll concede you, people can actually live without a spleen. The spleen usually gets attention when it ruptures and has to be removed surgically, and, and people actually can, can live without a spleen. Um, um, but they're at risk um, of life-threatening infections with these same encapsulated organisms, uh, specifically pneumococcus and meningococcus. And if you need explanations on that, I'll be happy to answer questions afterwards. Um, my point is that what Jesus is doing here is, is like the work of the spleen. He's clearing out the old evils and the accumulated toxins to make space for a new work of God. The Japanese theologian Kosuke Kuyama puts it this way, and I've got a quote. Almost everywhere, the New Year festival includes some symbolic act of expulsion of demons and diseases. When demons and diseases are expelled, we feel our life recreated and made new. This is the meaning of new, which is hidden, for instance, when we say a new car. New car is free from the demons and diseases that the old engine had. The concept of new is related to the sense of expulsion of demons and diseases. It is a moment of personal enrichment, meaning, and salvation. I want to let you sit with that for a moment. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new is coming. And the one who sits on the throne says, Behold, I'm making all things new. Next, Jesus prays. We can go on the next slide. There we go. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Now, this, the simple message here probably is, get up early in the morning and pray. And uh, I think we would all probably do well to do that. I, I myself, knowing my tendency to distraction, try and make sure I've got some good prayer time in before I even get out of bed. Otherwise, it may be too late. But I don't think that this is all that we have here. Uh, Jesus prayed at all times of the day. He prayed in the morning, he prayed in the evening, he prayed during the day. Sometimes he prays alone, but oftentimes he prays with other people around. If he didn't, we wouldn't have no recorded prayers of Jesus. Jesus was in constant communion with the Father. So why did he have to go off on his own to pray? Jesus found value in extended, undistracted prayer. It's a distraction keeps us from intimacy, does it not? In all our relationships. If we want intimacy, we have to somehow eliminate distraction, and that's true of our relationship with God. Distraction keeps us from deeper intimacy with God. So at this point in the sermon, I probably should give the simple lesson, just turn off your cell phones, disconnect from social media, 
Now, if you've got small kids, you're kind of out of luck. Um, uh, I, I think that that is good that we try and minimize our distractions. I think it's safe to say that we probably never lived in a time or place where distractions are so easily available to us. But as I think about this, I think more than cell phones and Netflix and social media, it's our pain and our fear uh, that is uh, the most powerful distractors. Pain, whether it's physical, mental, or spiritual, along with the fear that comes with it, that keeps us distracted. And I think actually, in examining myself, often these other distractions are what we're doing to try and distract us from the real distractors of pain and fear. I think I can be in the middle of nowhere with no cell phone and still be distracted by my own thoughts. But it's our pain and fear that we need to bring to Jesus to heal and to cast out. Where did Jesus go to pray? Now, if you read this passage and you have in, in your mind a, a wilderness retreat with a beautiful sunrise, I don't want to take that away from you, but I'll just tell you how I read it. Um, Jesus wakes up really early. It says it was still night. It's dark. It's damp. He's incredibly tired from a late night of healing and casting out demons. He gets up quietly so he doesn't wake anyone up and walks carefully so he doesn't stumble over anything in the dark. He steps out the door and the chill of the night seeps in through his garments. As he starts walking down the road by himself, maybe he's feeling that uh, kind of stiffness and achiness we start to get when we get into our 30s. Where is he going? He's going to a desolate place. He's going to a, a place of danger where there are wild animals, maybe thieves. He's going to the place and at the hour where he's most likely to encounter spiritual forces of evil. This is the hour of darkness and he's going into the desolate places. The last time he was in the wilderness, it was Satan himself who encountered him and tempted him for 40 days and 40 nights. Who knows what he'll find this time? And yet he's not afraid. Jesus came to redeem the dark and desolate places, so that's where he chooses to pray. Again, Kosuke Koyama puts it this way, wilderness stands for precariousness and danger. It is the place where demons inhabit but it signifies possibility and promise. In wilderness, danger and promise come together to us. For Jesus, prayer is not only communion with God, but it's also a moment of spiritual confrontation. Lead us not into temptation, he teaches us to pray, but deliver us from the evil one. For Jesus, prayer is spiritual confrontation. For us, it must be as well. We can go to our dark and desolate places in prayer because the one who heals and casts out demons is already there, interceding on our behalf. And he is not afraid. I want to pause here and talk about some important work that we do here. Um, under Jason's leadership, 
We do story work, story groups. We had a big conference here um, a few days ago um, where people from all over the United States and even um, by, uh, by video feed all over the world were coming to look at how to explore these dark and desolate places and allow the light of Jesus to come in. And we can have courage to go to those places because that's where Jesus is. And that's where he chooses to intercede on our behalf. Finally, Jesus leaves. Now this is a surprising move. Imagine for a moment if you came back next week and there was a big sign over the door that said, Trinity Anglican has moved to you know, someplace in rural Georgia. Um, <clears throat> the disciples and the crowds uh, were certainly surprised and probably disappointed. So why does Jesus leave a place of effective ministry to go someplace else? Well, Jesus said that this is the reason that he came. This is the reason he came out. This is the movement that Jesus, the Son of God, embodies. He leaves the right hand of the Father to take the form of a servant. He leaves Capernaum to preach in the other towns. Like the Good Shepherd, as the Good Shepherd, he leads, leaves the 99 to seek and to save the lost. And who is Jesus seeking? He's seeking you and me. He'll find us. He'll find us even in our darkest and most desolate places.